Okay, welcome to the last session of uh, this term of, of the Anthem Reading Group. It's the 11th of December. Uh, my name is Peter Eddy, as usual, Information Systems Group. And uh, we have, uh, would you introduce yourself, please? My name is Ben Eaton, I'm from the ISIL course. Hi, I'm Buffer from the ISIC, um, uh, ISIG. Yeah, my name is Wifak. I'm also from the ISIG group. Uh, my name is uh, Alex and I'm also from uh, ISIG, PhD student, second year. So we, we've just decided to discuss the last section, last installment of our reading schedule, which contains of the third move, connecting sites, and the conclusion of uh, reassembling the social. And we've just agreed to really just kind of follow the pages and our notes and see what, how, what is happening here. So if I understand it correctly, the uh, first and second move were about, the uh, first move was more about deploying, deploying the controversies and the second move was kind of stabilizing them. And this move is kind of combining or, or com connecting the sites, which is kind of a a third move, which is doing both moves at the same time, somehow. I would actually separate, I think there is actually two things happening in parallel. One, what you have just said, which he says is what sociology should be, that you identify controversies, stabilize them, and what was the third one? Combining them. Or and, and then recombine, yeah. or, or compose, compose your account and the world. And, but, but I think what the first move and the second move has to do with this business of uh, localizing the global and distributing the local and, and probably at the same time um, sort of getting rid of this agency system problem or agency structure problem. And so this is, so the third move, connecting the sites, when you connect these you know, but he said that you sort of flattened the whole thing, so you flattened the global, and we have left, we are left with these star-shaped yeah. things. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, so the first part I uh, I uh, highlighted was this part uh, on page two hundred and twenty, where he says, whenever a locus wishes to act on another locus, it has to go through some medium, transporting something all the way to go on acting. It has to maintain some sort of more or less durable connection. So this uh, reminds me of uh, Harman's, in Harman's uh, speech, this idea of, uh, uh, oh, what did he call it, that there's, that there's no immediate interaction between two things, but all interaction goes through a third kind of medium, or, or uh, um, what he called the... Uh, special name for that. Taken from Leibniz. Mm. You mean monads? Mm -hmm. I think monads were from Leibniz. Mm. Well, anyway, that, that's the basic idea of uh, mediation. Yes, and Harman has also been built yeah. on that and saying that uh, this is the, uh, the outcome of the philosophy of relation, that uh, relations happen always uh, within a third kind of container or uh, that interaction between 
between two actors, kind of problem, a third uh, construction of a third entity, the construction of a third entity that becomes actor Well, I think there's a number of things going on here that, while on one hand, uh, Latour is dealing with sort of redefining sociology and redefining how to do social science, and he's also giving an alternative view of how to look at the world. So he he, he talks about his uh, channels and tunnels and um, all this circulation going on and stuff flowing and communicating. So there's some... Some aspects of the network seem to be durable, but then some other parts sort of flow around, and so what he calls the social, I guess, is this movement in between. And so then one question is what you've just raised, how do things communicate with each other? Or, and as you can restate that as what is causality, how does one thing affect another? And so um, that, this notion of translation... Um, so, so, so anyway, I mean, I think it throws up kind of all, all, all these like um, metaphysical issues, and uh, but also this whole issue of how to do social research, how you follow these changes, in how, how how do you prove that one thing affects another, as you said. Um, so, uh, yeah. but here, I mean, it's not uh, that you are trying to define the sense of the arrows. We're just talking about relations, and they may be in both directions. It's that a connection between two actors always happens inside a third. Mm-hmm. And that actor mm-hmm. is also in a way performative. That, that this outcome of the interaction is, always, uh, is also doing something. Well, that's what Harman says. This is what right. Harman says, but also what yeah. you, f- you can find it through, uh, I mean, all, through the, his text. I mean, what I find interesting, I mean, it, and he goes on to, I mean, the first thing he starts talking about, maybe the first concept here that might help us understand is this idea of the form mm-hmm. and then information, yes. which is on pages 222 two, two, and, and 223. Okay. And, and I mean, here is uh, engaging with this question of well, what is an object, or what is a thing, or what is a being? I mean, he's, he's now going into sort of a on, on, on ontology. So, uh, at the bottom he said, as soon as we concentrate on what circulates from site to site, the first type of entities to snap into focus are forms. And, and then he actually refers in the footnote to this issue of uh, the star-like shape. So that the world is kind of made of this, so that a site, or an important site, which you claim that does something, so I don't know if you make a statement that, I don't know, the House of Commons or the British Parliament has done something, so the way to think about that is not that it's some sitting on the top of a pyramid and then all its actions going to flow down to the rest of the UK, but more like a flat world where there is there's these sites which look like these stars, so to speak, which radiate an awful lot of action. And some of these sites are stronger than others and affect other sites. Well, I don't know, that's just my 
interpretation of the overall sort of landscape <laughs> of his networks. What he, what he means by a form is the way in which one side affects another. In order to take from one side to another side, you have to create a form which is more stable in a sense. Exactly. In more, uh, yeah, it's, it's what actually what he calls the mobile, immutable mobiles. So he says the form is simply something which allows something else to be transported from one side to another. So exactly a map. Simple. If, if, for example, he, he gave this example of a, you know, how does uh, the the king of Spain control what is happening in in you know, America, and that is done through a map. So there there are two different sides, and the way things are transported is by putting things into you know charting them onto a map, which you can. Which is mobile in the sense that you can you cannot transport the mountains from United from America to to uh, to to Spain or to the UK, but you can transport a map. So that is the form, which is also a kind of displacement of one site into another form, and this displacement he calls information. Well, I, I would even go further, and I would say that well, I'm not sure if he says that, but I would say that. This is almost a definition of, almost like an ontological uh, definition of a being, according to Latour, in the sense that, I mean, everything is a form. So once it's got a form, like you, let's say, offer, you know, you're assuming a shape, um, or anything, really, that bottle or the table or anything is a form, because it has gone through a series of translations, and in each translation you assume a form. I mean, he links it to this idea of translation. So one entity, well, some action yeah. being passed on to another action, and at every given moment, this is expressed in a particular form. There's a very good the, uh, circulating reference article in Pandora's book. I think it's, it's the best uh, article I have read on the immutable mobiles because it very nicely shows how they, something uh, essential, something important, is retained from the Amazon uh, rainforest uh, when it goes through all these kind of transformations and translations and ends up in scientific publications. So what that is, there is something, the rainforest is still there in the paper. It has been kind of, or well, some aspects of it that were present there have been kind of, trans, kind of transported through these transformations into the uh, paper, so that's kind of, I think the image of Google Mobile is one of the uh, most probably pragmatic concepts of it's, it's, it's kind of very usable if you want to use your empirical research, that's why I, I, I like it somehow I kind of sort of overall I, the more I read this I feel that uh, what this because still uh, this uh, uh, critique of he builds so much against sort of traditional sociology and uh, to me what he tries to, to it seems what he tries to say is that uh, uh, traditional sociology is ontologizing as the reality something that can be actually uh, in a way framed or seen from a different perspective because he actually in the end I think he ends up kind of being, kind of explaining what the sociology has been doing within his own 
slaughtering the masses when they, they, they start to behave badly, which is obviously very uneconomic because killing people kind of causes more chaos. So that's an uneconomic way of keeping order. So you, there had to be kind of the modern ones in a way pretty much based on sort of self-discipline and sociology has been very good at and also society supporting that self-discipline people. So you mean by adding new words, new, vo- new vocabulary and new explanations, you, it was a form of power in a sense? Well, in a sense, uh, yes, kind of, kind of uh, sociology of course studies society, but it also was a part of attempt to not in particular, but in very general terms, part of attempt to create an orderly world. Yes. Mm-hmm. What he calls uh, social engineering, actually. Well, it, mm-hmm. yes. But uh, just to say that maybe I'm, maybe I'm mistaken, completely mistaken, but I cannot see the difference between form here and mediator. Mediator is a form, form is mediator. And I have this impression that, in, for example, French people, it's not like this pragmatic way of writing that you find in English, that you have to uh, kind of constrain yourself on using the same concept from, the, from starting to end. But French people, they change concepts. They change, I mean, they, when they are... I, I have this impression that, that's very, very true with that sometimes because. Latour is saying exactly the same thing from the beginning till the end, but through uh, dozens of concepts that are same almost the same thing, or interact, uh, or they have the same meaning, or... So form and mediator uh, is almost the... Yeah, that, that, I, don't, I don't know exactly about this concept of form, but you are, in general I think you are very right. I think in this book, I was ready, there was, uh, I would say, quickly said, I would say that the concept of plasma was the only really new thing to me. Everything, all the other things, yeah, all the others, can be kind of, they are really, I can, I can almost pick out the articles, I, sometimes I can pick out the article, those articles, where they come from, already from the 90s, so the basic conception hasn't really changed radically, but Harman says that it, it's, it was already in the 80s, the basic kind of ideas were in place. Yeah, well, I think that's, uh, um, well, maybe first on this issue of what the object versus form, I mean, I think that we, we should um, Harman's um, philosophy with Latour because they don't agree actually on all of these issues but you are absolutely right, I mean it's the same there's the tension because remember what Latour was saying that well if you stand here or if you walk over there then you're supposed to be a different entity because already a series of translations happened so you're not the same, so Latour seems to be I guess suggest that there was this form that maybe stayed the same <laughs> yes. while the translations have happened you know, so that's the reason that um, Alexi looks still pretty similar to the way he looked last week but uh, uh, Graham seems to suggest that there's actually an object there which is kind of in excess or, in, or not accessible fully so the reason you look the same as last, year, last week or maybe even last year because there, there is some sort of a um, you know, object in the, the, there. You know. uh, not necessarily. Well, I'm sure it wouldn't like that word. But there is that issue that is there an object or or is it just all 
the effect of you know, but you know I think uh, relations. I think so they just you know you just cannot pick everything into relations, and there isn't a um, object. But Latour will not object to that, actually. He does. I show you here. Look, uh, page two three seven. Just skipping a bit. But uh, he, he's talking about the question: Look, what is what is what is intrinsic and what is extrinsic? Extrinsic. Is there you know about intrinsicity and extrinsicity? And he said he does not say that there is no no such thing as intrinsicity. He says. If, okay, he looks at the at a work of art and he asks, is a work of art of value because what is intrinsic in it or because of the social relationships that are that are outside? And he said, this is a not, not a zero-sum game. Um, and so on. It, and he says, while in the old paradigm you, have, you had to have a zero-sum game, everything lost by the work of art was gained by the social. Everything lost by the social had to be gained by the inner quality of the work of art. In the new paradigm, you are allowed a win-win situation. The more attachments, the better. And he gives an experiment. What hap uh, uh, an, uh, an example? What happens if a friend says, "Hey, look at that piece. You know how interesting this this is. You know, and then and then you see that piece. So so of course that thing was in the in the painting, but you haven't seen it before it was pointed. In. So I think. He has a more uh, complicated kind of synergetic kind of way of looking at things than just there is no essence. Simply. Um, yeah, okay, I mean, I think that here the example that you picked, as he seems to be suggesting, is that uh, basically, so you guys, no <laughs> problem. <laughs> No problem. Uh, he seems to be suggesting that, well, by these other types of interpretations of art, they've uh, ignored the fact that the work of art was an actor, or that it could have an effect, so to speak. But, but I'm, I'm not sure if that means the same that it is an object. You know, it's it's still a well, at least uh, ontologically. Speaking, still everything seems to be made of uh, relations. You know that everybody, everything is. So anything that looks like an object is a black box that you can open, and then there is millions of relations. Relations. To me, the Thomas here is the um, Well, first of all, I think Harman put it very nicely that then, kind of, if you take it to the logical conclusion, then everything stands still, which is obviously that. If you move from side of a table to another, you are another person with simply a ridiculous position. Let's be honest about it. You are not you are not completely the same. There must be some kind of continuity. Kind of, uh, I think it would be just kind of that kind of logical conclusion. If that can be wrong, that kind of position is it's very difficult to defend it. So it's the form that makes you have the feeling of continuity, so to speak. So there, must, okay, but there must be some kind of continuity, that the continuity yeah. must be explained somehow. Yeah. But I mean, but biologically speaking, that yes, already your cells would have, you know, aged, and your hair would have grown a bit longer, and, you know, you, 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 you physiologically would have something. Or we do have some evidence mm -hmm. that you are not actually the exact same person, you know. Of course, <laughs> that's kind of... 
we, we have always a massive amount of evidence that you are the same person. So I mean, I think, what I makes I me the same? What wait, makes wait, me the same? That you call me Peter? No, wait, wait. I, think, I think this, this argument, like everything in Latour, we cannot say either the same or different. He talks all the time that the reality, what is realism for him, is multiplicity and unity together. So, and uh, John Locke puts it very uh, straightly in his book, uh, After Method, that when you look at a thing, it is always more than one and less than many. So it's not simply saying when you go from one network to the other, it's completely different, nor is it you know, completely the same, but some kind of you know, hybrid or uh, something like that. So anyway, there is some kind of uh, continuity. Okay, maybe of course, but I it's think uh, the kind of then the continuity must be uh, somehow accounted for. To me, what is puzzling is that you know, because really, like all kind of it comes obvious when he talks this, this talk about plasma. I think finally that uh, um, is that he really it's, it's, it is a really a sort of ontological position to argue what is out there because I have been uh, always kind of have this little bit uh, schizophrenic uh, feeling towards that whether this is going to be taken as a sort of uh, in a way after all sort of epistemological position that we just kind of uh, we don't necessarily with the action report here we are not so interested after all what's out there, but kind of what is acting here and now. But obviously this is not Latour's position after the kind of introduction of this concept of plasma. Because then uh, kind of the performativity and, and, and the kind of the relational kind of how different relations make up things, it would be much easier to kind of accept if it would be kind of just a viewpoint to what is acting here and now, and not necessarily kind of this kind of all-encompassing ontological point. What is there in the world? I'm not sure if I make myself clear, but uh, yeah. do you mind if I just make a point on that? Because uh, I mean, that's one interesting. Um, I mean, one interesting thing you're you know uh, you're raising, and this is kind of something that actor network theory has been accused of or Latour before, and there's actually, I've picked um, some moments where you can, you know, trace this. One, that on page 221, he says, ANT is not a theory. Well, we talked about this a lot, you know. It says, ANT is not a theory, it says it's a negative theory, right on the top of page 221. With ANT, we push theory one step further into abstraction. It is a negative, empty, relativistic grid that allows us not to synthesize the ingredients of the social in the actor's place. And he mentioned it before, you know, that uh, ANT is a tool and you shouldn't confuse the tool with what you study, what you use the tool to study, you know, so basically um, world or the reality or, or, or whatever, right? And then he says, so let's, and at some point he says, let's flatten the world and all this stuff, but what we are flattening is the tool. You know the perspective, the the sociologist perspective. So if you get this A and T perspective, what means is that you don't believe in pre-existing structures. You um, you enforce this flat perspective. But then he says, but yes, there are actually structures in the world, but they are constructed. Yes. They are performed. 
but you have to discover that as opposed to a priori assume that they are there. But, but, but then on page two, two, 242, on page 242 it says, if it's true as ANT claims that the social landscape possesses such a flat network topography, uh, and that the ingredients making a society travel inside tiny conduits, what is in between the meshes of such a circuitry? Actually, the reason I'm picking this quote because he says, A&T claims that the social landscape is flat. You know. So, so it, there seems to be a confusion now between A&T and the world he's trying to describe. So I, I'm just saying, Latour doesn't seem to be consistent with, with this thing. He you know, that sometimes says that he wants to conflict, that he doesn't seem to doesn't uh, uh, want to make the distinction between ontology and epistemology. See, uh, I don't remember what he says, but he wants to kind of get rid of this dual bad dualism. But to me, yeah. it seems that it somehow uh, actually uh, he might somehow kind of it's kind of lurking back here that kind of conflating that those two things are kind of maybe also cause some difficulties to this position. Because obviously when he starts to talk about uh, <coughs> plasma, it's kind of, uh, he ends up kind of talking about what is out there. So it's, it, that, that position kind of as in the essential to kind of approach kind of how to study social well would be easier uh, or I have difficulties to kind of fit this concept of plasma into that 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 uh, that uh, context or that setup. Well, we'll definitely have to discuss the whole plasma uh, issue. Uh, but, but I think this is an interesting question because um, even the um, you know the article. I don't know if you have the chance to read the Robert Oppenheimer's article about ANT. But uh, well, even in the abstract, he says you know advocates. Um, sort of considering ANT as an ontology. And I mean, a few people have been suggesting that, right? But the question is, is ANT an ontology or ANT is a tool to study ontologies, multiple ontologies? You know, what, what I'm trying to say is uh, that that's kind of um, not the same thing to say. Because, of, of course, if you say that um, ANT is ontology, then ANT is a theory then, you know, or you, you think that it's a theory of being. If it's a theory of being, then um, th then you kind of uh, start fishing out some categories of what's out there, you know, as opposed to so. so but I mean, I think you are right that these two seem to be conflated. So maybe it's not possible to separate it. Maybe this is intentional, this confusion. But I think you know, I've heard people criticizing Latour for this. That saying, well, he's not consistent with his own principles or something like that. You know that. You know, but the question is: Is this deliberate? Is this uh, is this that? Well, ANT is not an ontology, but it is. You know, it's not a <laughs> it's not a theory, but it is a theory yeah. of some kind. I think know. I think this is uh, quite plain. I think from the introduction, at least, he, what ANT is, as much as I understand, is simply a methodology. It's rules, guidelines, clamps. You know, you have to, for example, you have to. Uh, be very attentive to controversies. Look how things are stabilized. So these are like uh, almost like you know, you know, pay attention, observe, look, you know, account for, pay, you know, li ha 
let let the objects of your study be be loud and clear and ha have respect for them. So it's kind of a almost a it's a methodologic, and it, it says here very clearly that that he he doesn't use, like to use this word. It's a pompous Greek name of method or even worse methodology. But this is actually I, I, a guidebook, a cookbook. He usually he sometimes uh, right. Right, but the, the, I think the result of this methodology is when you really follow the actors as he says you should, then what you see is modes of existence. So the result of this method is discovering, discovering is not a good word, but uh, kind of paying attention to what exists and not uh, a theory in, in the sense that it explains things. And of course, with the epistemology, I think he doesn't like the idea of epistemology, because epistemology, from the start, uh, from the outset, divides the world, right, into something outside, something inside, which he rejects. Well, I, I agree with you, um, but I think that, um, but I think that that's what he says at the beginning. Almost I'm suggesting that there's this movement in the text that you agree that, uh, well, you start out deploying these principles, just as you said. You start out saying, this is a methodology, but what is the purpose of methodology? Well, it is actually to come up with a, a new ontology, so to speak, you know, a new, new, new explanation of the world. So actually, the third move, or the end, is... Uh, is that movement of actually moving into now explaining the world with the tools. And I call your attention to page 239 uh, at the bottom of it. And here he refers to Kant, Kant's Copernican Revolution. And he says Kant's Copernican Revolution, so basically, you know, redefining uh, entire Western philosophy in terms of the philosophy of the access and the philosophy of, you know, subjects access to reality he actually called he says Copernican revolution is but a weak understatement so he's actually saying now I'm going to do something even more revolutionary yeah. and, and he says this is where I'm going to lose my readers because he says if I manage to keep until now a few readers they may well abandon the theory for good so this is where and, and this is I think where he's stepping into philosophy and metaphysics was to understand what I take to be the ultimate goal of A&T. So that's the contrast with your quote at the beginning, which he said it was a, the goal was to have it as a methodology. Now the ultimate goal of A&T says we have to let out of their cages entities which had been strictly forbidden to enter the scene until now and to allow them to roam in the world again. And then comes the footnote 335. And he says that basically he... It's possible that such a move is beyond the reach of social science and that it leads to philosophy. But I have learned from all that empirical philosophy might be another way to do social science. Okay, so I think here, here comes the Laturian moves. Although I'm not, I'm not saying it didn't happen earlier in the text. I mean, actually, he's been talking about this from the beginning, really. At some point, he started talking about, you know, practical metaphysics, empirical metaphysics. But... What I'm trying to say that there seem to be these two things. AMD is a tool, but then it's a tool to produce 
an alternative ontology or an alternative being, and this is where this whole figure of plasma and all this stuff comes up, you know. So, um, then uh, I think the basic question uh, philosophy has been one of the basic questions, as far as I know, has been that whether we should start uh, from epistemology or ontology, meaning uh, whether we should first decide what there is or how we know about it. And okay, there has been, I guess, the kind of no, they are leading towards that we have to kind of the question of how do we know about it comes first. But this would then suggest that actually uh, which is with the offers sort of an uh, kind of put sort of methodology A and D in the first by using that kind of you find out what is out there. Now uh, <coughs> that's that's obviously if it's if you put it like this it's obviously quite a radical proposition which might not be a problem for Latour. I'm not sure if this is what he thinks about, but obviously another problem is that uh, is, is, is this then sort of neutral methodology kind of that does not have any kind of presuppositions, what is out there, and obviously uh, then another question is that so much criticizing uh, sociology uh, actually kind of, kind of social sciences obviously work on a totally different uh, level. So when it comes back to this made sense some sort of division of labor which between A and Z and kind of more traditional approaches uh, Latour seems to hint that sometime sometimes here. Mm, I, I, I'm not sure if I I'm not sure if I agree with the division of labor point. I mean, he kind of maybe talked about that at the beginning, but here it almost... Well, I don't think that he criticizes sociology in itself, I think it's more that he criticizes the model of causality underlying it. So this whole idea that you, you know, you say that A explains B, but also that one A explains a million Bs. You know, basically. So, so you've got the one mediator, or you've got a few mediators, a few explanations, a few agencies, which explain everything. So that's a way of doing science, which he suggests, social science, which he suggests is a lazy way, because you use the same old category, the same old explanation, the same old cause to explain everything else. And so what, what he does say that it's been nevertheless very successful in for formatting or performing, mm. because if Marx, let's say, or whoever came up first with the idea of social class. But what happens? Social class enters everyday practice. Um, policy, government policy is now starting to, you know, you start allocating funds and design programs according to social class. People understand the concept of social class, so I'm not going to move into the neighborhood where, where I think is the social class, where I don't want to be part of. You know, so I move to another. I move my child to another school, etc., etc. And so, actually, traditional sociology was then very extremely successful in the sense that it diffused its formatting categories so much that in fact it became a political problem. You know, that in fact it has performed the world in a certain way. There was, uh, but the challenge here is that. Um, um,
it's, on the other hand, it's very interesting, but on the other hand, it's, I have this strange, as I said, schizophrenic feeling that Latour is, in a way, uh, constructing sort of a straw man of sociology. Because with sociology, you don't explain uh, why uh, <coughs> any kind of, you don't take this kind of aggregate things and explain particular instances because of, you don't explain why that person behaves like that because of he belongs to the social class. You don't explain things that like that in sociology. But you explain aggregate level uh, things that cannot be like uh, many people, <coughs> every, like it's against this uh, example of suicide. Every suicide has very individual reasons, a lot of mediators coming together why people kill themselves. But when you look at acrostatistically those, you see different patterns across nations, and you can you can understand those patterns by looking at the individual cases. And that's where why where how sociology kind of uh, uh, explains things on that level, but never kind of good sociology doesn't explain that okay this person belongs to a working class, that's why he uh, works like this. And I think actually Latour is this, I'm not sure about this platform because to me somehow he seems to anyway after all, after all this discussion, introduce this society behind there in that platform because what sociologists do very well is say that we have been all the time kind of uh, <coughs> studying this plasma. What good sociology does study is this plasma. Well, um, I, mean, I mean, I think the problem with talking about this last chapter is that I think there's so many threads are being pulled here together that it's actually quite a complex topic because, as you've said, I mean, it's, it's about now history of sociology, there's a history of metaphysics, history of Western philosophy, uh, politics and political science and, you know, God knows what, I mean, an, an entire, you know, ontology and epistemology. Maybe just one point before we move on to this problem of the plasma, I mean, what you sort of very well pointed out, this distinction between epistemology and ontology, and so suggesting that, well, Know, do we decide about first about how do we know what we know? But the problem with that is that because we come from the sort of the Kantian tradition, if you first want to figure out how do we know what we know, you get trapped in the philosophy of access problem because then you go back to kind of okay the individual subjects, you know, cognitive sort of powers or, or aspects. And the interesting thing, or what I what he seems to suggest about epistemology, and with some very, what I find interesting or powerful ways, is that, uh, well, he, he says that interpretation is not the, or epistemology is not the preserve of humans. I mean, at some point, I mean, I'll just ask you, I mean, I'll, I'll read one, one section. Oh, here, page 2444, two, sorry, 244. Uh, so maybe it, it maybe it helps us understand you know what he thinks about epistemology. But uh, at the bottom last paragraph it says to interpret some behavior. Uh, oh, well, sorry, I'm just trying to say. Um, I mean, basically he starts saying that it's not just there's a mistake to think that only human beings can interpret. 
And uh, so at the bottom of that, anyway, at the bottom of the last paragraph, it's not that purposeful humans, intentional persons, and individual souls only on, are the only interpretive, interpretative agents in a world of matters of fact devoid of any meaning by itself. So he says, humans are not the only ones doing interpretation. There's what is meant by interpretations, flexibility and fluidity, is simply a way to register the vast outside to which every course of action has to appeal in order to be carried out. This is not true for just human actions. So listen to that. I mean, this is not true for just human actions, but for every activity. Hermeneutics is not a privilege of humans, but, so to speak, a property of the world itself. So that's where your epistemology is, you know, that basically it's scattered around to every action. So even he seems to suggest, you know, that he's a non-correlationist in, um, you know, in the Bea um term, which Harman picked up on. So basically when one non-human entity affects another non-human entity, uh, it's an act of interpretation. Or an act of. Um, Is that not translation? Well, yes, so, I mean, anything that affects something else is an act of translation. So, whether it's between humans and non humans, or non humans and non humans, what I'm trying to say, and I would link this with the idea of the form. I mean, if let's say one planet, I mean, actually, just yesterday I was seeing something on the, on, on the television, you know, that apparently the rings of Saturn. Um, are the result of a moon or some object crashing into Saturn and then all this uh, rubble was raised and then it kind of settled into this pattern. And so there's these millions of debris or billions of pieces of little things floating around. So that impact was the translation and uh, at the outcome of that translation came those bits of rocks, you know, a new form, you could say. You know, something that used to be one big object, now it's into millions of, scattered into millions of smaller objects. What I'm trying to say is that, well, that's just how I'm trying to explain, interpret this idea of form, or what is information, you know, what is form, and how, how non-human entities can participate in this act of, um, you know, uh, interpretation. I mean, the example you gave was a, an example of very simple causality. I don't think he, mean, he makes a translation as just a causality. Uh, that's not what I was suggesting. But, I mean, it's an action. But, but an action is distributed, so... Um, it's an action of the distance. It's more like trying to make something else do something. It's a displacement of an action. Sure, but, but I mean, I'm just talking about the, this notion that he suggests that meaning is produced out there not meaning is not the outcome of the interpretive action of human beings, but meaning is something that sort of happens through these interactions in the universe. You know, I mean, he ends up talking about cosmopolitics, and at some point he really extends. Uh, he's, I mean, in this notion of plasma, I mean, he actually talks about, you know, quite possibly cosmic forces um, in everyday life. And, I mean, if you go back to even, I don't know, the ancient Greeks or whatever, I mean, they're actually 
they thought that Mars and Venus was affecting people's, you know, <laughs> behavior, uh, you know. So, so in a way, I mean, that used to be part of um, our interpretation. Some, somehow, um, well, obviously there is this ontology epistemology kind of conflation in play here. But somehow, I, 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 I uh, find this, mm, in a way, I, I, I understand the idea of the there can be transfer formations and kind of uh, interplay between non-human entities or whatever those are, but kind of it's really helpful to say that table interprets another table, honestly. I and mean, if you look at Latour's own studies, they are very human-centered. He hasn't kind of, in every kind of, if he would be true to this kind of project, he would study tables and kind of uh, something that would be completely devoid of humans, but in his studies there were very much humans always in play. So in that sense, I think, uh, I'm not sure if this is, or at least I have to admit that I don't get much out of this kind of uh, uh, approach. Well, I mean, I mean, Harman seems to have suggested that, first of all, there, Latour never studied transmissions between, or translation between objects, because, well, he studied sociology of science, and so it was about yeah. humans, and ultimately, I mean, we are all humans involved in this, and uh, you know we, we uh, clearly care about ourselves. So and this is one precisely one point I think Latour doesn't raise anywhere is the concept of observer because the observer tends to be human anyway. This is the plasma is the first place where he introduces an observer. He asks, there are things that we know and there are things that we're not. We do not know and other things that we don't know. Or this kind of plasma. So here is the first time where epistemology comes actually into play in the whole book. After deriding epistemology as the uh, ontology of access throughout, suddenly he brings in the question of knowledge, and interpretations, and all those things, hermeneutics, all those things that. That's. Well, I think he mentioned, though, the, the, the inquirer earlier on in the chapter where he talks about accounts. So the social scientist is obviously a human being, so it's the one who creates the account. But the accounting, meaning writing your account and deciding what you put into your dissertation, you know, deciding what you study, what you put into your research project, and how good your research project is. I mean, the inquirer has a lot of obviously big role to play in that. So I think he did mention that. But I mean clearly this is a you are absolutely right, this is a an area which you wish that he would explain a bit more, saying, okay, what is the role of the By the way, an account part? also account is not a, a sole uh, uh, work just of a writer. Of course he needs evidence, he needs the paper, he needs the words, the language, he's playing with the evidence, you know, he's so many, there's a gathering of many, many, not human and non-humans in every account, of course. So yeah. even here, there's no, you cannot talk about a human, uh, you know. Uh, but still, still, I, I completely agree that it's not kind of naked humans kind of sitting in the wild kind of doing research, but with all these tools. But still, kind of this kind of researcher instances, what we might call them, they tend to have something in common in between, like me as a researcher, or kind of, we have some. It would be ridiculous to say that we wouldn't have some kind of resemblances between each other kind of as a researcher. Uh, and it's actually, you put it very nicely, I had kind of thought it from that point, but actually.
actually that's relatively true that introduction of this plasma kind of uh, kind of the distinction between unknown and the networks kind of can be seen as a sort of introduction of observer and some kind of to whom unknown. Well, I disagree. I mean, in the sense that I don't see that as being the observer. I think that the plasma, if you ask to whom, yeah. it the plasma exists, it's to the actor networks. So all, the, all there are in the world are actor networks. And so ultimately, I mean, he uses the metaphor of the tube map, right? Or another maybe more interesting metaphor is the human body. He said if you could color in all the veins and um, extensions of uh, your, you know, all, all the little conduits basically that make your, make, make up the body, then you would have this massive huge tangle of all these different uh, channels and things like that. And uh, so if all the knowledge in the world and all the reality of the world, I mean, if you be, for him, the social includes everything, right? It includes nature, it includes humans, yeah. it includes everything. So all the knowledge and everything that exists, yeah. that is aware of itself to some extent, whether as a human being or whatever, you know, that circulates, is what, is, uh, what, is, what exists to us, right? So, but... Who is this us? Yeah, us, the chair, the table, the, you know, the library, the books in the library. I think you would argue that a chair knows anything. When he says... No, well, it's not, not, not in that anthropomorphic kind of thing. It's not that he knows something, but it's clearly the production of the knowledge. Yeah, you know, I mean, somebody has... Uh, okay, if, if the, you know, it's, it's a form. It's a form. If the networks are everything that exists to us is in the networks, meaning that plasma is outside and if us can be anything, then obviously anything is in the networks, there is nothing outside. How do you define what is outside? Yeah, well, when the networks, uh, when some networks fall apart. So, I mean, what a good question you are raising, you know, why does he, why does Latour need to bring I mean, this, this, this why, my problem why, why does Latour need to bring in the plasma? And exactly, that's why he needs to bring in the notion of the plasma, because he needs to explain what happens to actor networks that fail. What happens to actor networks that fall apart? So if you had the Soviet Union fell apart, I mean, the Enron falls apart, um, anything that disintegrates... I, I, um, I disagree. Plasma is not there only for things that fall apart. Plasma is there for things that we do not understand. And here we is... Well, it's just un things. unformatted phenomena. So if actor networks are formatted phenomena, so in order to... In order for something to exist, it has to be formed, turned into a form. It has to exist as a chair or a table or you or a piece of rock or something, right? So, uh, and, 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 and to something, it has to be engaged in some sort of an action. So, so, so not that the chair needs to understand anything, but it mediates right now, it's involved in this action of performing Precisely true, but then, then in order to perform an action to kind of exist, you exist for somebody, and there has to be somebody observing that action because otherwise we kind of, it falls into the. We can basically say that quarks don't exist to each because well, no, 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 it, it kind of, there is no chair well, okay. for anybody else than for humans. I, I think that uh, Introna made an excellent explanation of that point when he was saying that. I mean, if you look at, uh, I mean, in front of me, this example of the cup, that if you put the cup on the table, 
then actually the, there's a translation between the cup and the disc. You know, the cup knows the disc in the sense that it, you know, mediates um, gravity or whatever. It's, it keeps it in that place. I mean, you cannot deny that there isn't some sort of a relationship between the disc and the cup, you know, unless this is all just a dream, you know. But, uh, the, the, so there's a mediation of action. There's an action that it mediates it keeps it there. Serves this purpose, so that's that's part of an actor network. Yeah, but I would say it's only because you observe it, kind of, or that that makes kind of unless we take it. No, but if I walk out of this room, it's still going to mediate there. And I don't have to observe it for it to mediate. I mean, that's the question of realism. I mean, then you question that there is anything real without the human observer, which is kind of a big question, you know, obviously. But I'm saying that kind of. Me, it seems that uh, unless we don't, unless we have some kind of observer perspective, everything kind of collapses into a one huge uh, actor network because then there is nobody to make distinctions. Then everything is related to everything kind of mediated. Then that hub is actually mediated through quite many mediators to the other side of the galaxy. It is. But what's the point in that kind? That, then, then we don't need actually that, this concept of plasma because everything is mediated to anything else. Everything is connected through actor networks to everything else, so then we don't need the concept of plasma. But, but I mean, you have to be what, able what is to that? trace it. Well, but I want to trace it, then you have the observer, somebody tracing it. I think we don't need so much. I mean, I don't think plasma, the idea of plasma is so important, actually, to ANT. I think it's maybe an idea that he's kind of developing and he's trying to think about. And, and I think, well, I, I, if, if you come, let's say, let's con contrast this with Heidegger. I mean, Heidegger's uh, notion of truth was this aletheia, you know, un unveiling. And, and so he said that there's this withdrawn realm, and then things emerge, get unveiled, or even in the human activity of going around and interpreting, you, you unveil things and then they get covered up as well. So also things withdraw and disappear into what he called oblivion, right? So things appear, they might be around, but then the same thing as you know with archaeology, that I mean, if you, you to, to find uh, past civilizations you need to dig through several layers of earth because it's been sedimented over. So it's been actually literally forgotten and covered up. So, so Heidegger kind of explains to what happens stuff, you know, when it disappears. For Latour, on the other hand, everything is uh, formatted in the actor network. So even, oh, even in here he says that, well, anything that's in the actor network, the okay. not the plasma. So I'm just trying to explain why we need the plasma. Because, um, so, so if everything is formatted, which means that everything that's a black box can be opened and you can always find what that black box was made of. He said even if it's a historical black box or something really old, he just says it's a question of effort. You could be an archaeologist and as long as you're willing to go to the library, you're willing to dig out or you're willing to invent a machine that will identify the historical roots of some, you know, object, then um, it's never forgotten. But then it kind of raises the question that, you know, then why do we need the plasma? Well, uh, where does stuff come from then? I mean, 
where do new things come from? I think actually I'm more and more kind of curious about this. I think what you really said about the concept of plasma relates to the kind of it makes sense with this idea of observer because uh, kind of just say that everything is related to everything else through innumerable mediators. That's kind of isn't that pretty self-evident that we can, but kind of the distinction between plasma and actor networks makes sense from the. Uh, the perspective from the if you act the observer and I think that's very uh, that's very pragmatic kind of useful concept in a sense because if you want to do research you somehow have to there is something that you have to somehow make difference between what you study and what you don't study because you will obviously go tracing the networks forever I don't, I, mean, I don't really understand this point of how how you I mean that would, that would have been the last thing that, that I would have really thought about it, because this plasma just seems like it's basically this concept of this vast unknown of, unknown you know, which, which has not entered articulation, you know, so, so... Articulated by who? That's my question. Well, by who? I mean, who articulates a tree? I, I mean, would say human. I would say human. Because if you say that anything can articulate, uh, articulate a tree, anything can articulate anything, then obviously there is anything is all the time articulated. Mm. Well, I, I mean, if you say that, I mean, then you would really claim. Well, I mean, that's the that's the big question about you know correlationism and non-correlationism, which is kind of the big question of what sort of what sort of realism is possible. Because if you say that for, I mean, yesterday I don't know if you saw the news about that. Did you see that little animal they discovered in Mongolia? Um, they discovered a little mouse who's got these huge ears and looks like a, a, a kangaroo, jumps like a kangaroo, a little tiny thing, and uh, looks you know, quite bizarre. And uh, nobody ever knew that it existed. You know? And now it's an endangered species because of global warming and all that stuff. Uh, so actually, human action is like affecting <laughs> this creature, but no, we didn't know that it existed. So, I mean, you cannot say that that's creature was not articulated before some American biologist went to Mongolia and, you know, discovered it. I mean, uh, just because we humans are very conscious of our own interpreting capabilities and so, but that doesn't mean that meaning starts and ends in our own interpretation, that there has to be a human observer. Here there's a difference between Graham Harman's view and Latour's view. Latouf says very clearly that uh, Pasteur invented the microbes very clearly. Uh, well, 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 I mean, you know what Harman said about that, that you know, there's one or two moments in Latour's texts in his entire life where he makes that kind of extreme statement. Now, do you pick up those two statements and say that therefore Latour is definitely a correlationist, or does that mean that those things did not exist for humans, but they were articulated? outside the human, you know, okay, it didn't exist before in the medical consciousness or in the medical world, but microbes obviously, I mean, Latour comes from yeah, a wine-making family, I mean, they have microbes, you know. <laughs> I think, I think, I think so. for, for Latour it's very important to say that before things have been become made a matter of fact, they were not really a matter of fact, yeah, they yeah. Of course, so as long as they were a matter of concern, they were very kind of wishy-washy, they have, they have arguments and counter-arguments and you're not really sure if their uh, 
state of reality is not is a matter of concern. And only after they became a matter of fact, they are real entities acting in the world. Yeah. But I see even question whether you use the term matter of concern in an anthropological sense, because who can be concerned? Is it only humans who can be concerned? So a matter of concern will always have to be a matter of concern for humans, or is even a matter of concern is a concept that maybe a non-correlationist, you know, that... Uh, maybe, maybe it's... To phrase another way, it's just that um, I find it uh, quite uninteresting um, to kind of think if the book gives some meaning to table because we are humans, so I think uh, I just don't probably... Uh, I just don't see a kind of that kind of uh, pondering. But I mean, physics uh, studies relations with um, you know between inanimate objects. I mean, it's important. We wouldn't be able to send a man on the moon or send a probe onto Mars, you know, if we didn't study actually interaction between non-human entities. So, but these are interactions are matter of facts that were not always matter of. They have become matter of facts through our labor, through human and think the gathering of human and things together. But the physics, yeah, physics don't they don't say that atoms would give meanings. Of course not. No, no. I, that's what I'm saying. Oh, Even atoms have become were not always there. They have become into existence through through a lot of work, a lot of labor of, of humans and non-humans. Yeah, but uh, well, well, I mean, it's a, it raises the whole issue of what is then Latour's definition of materiality. So, so what, what is what is matter? Because um, uh, you know, I mean, if you what you, what you are suggesting, well, I would agree with your interpretation. If I mean, what I think Latour's um, theory of um, matter is that what well, is clearly is some sort of a hybrid between. Know, um, what you would traditionally call know, physical matter and ideas and various kinds of only atoms. Matter is not only atoms for atoms, that's obvious. Yeah. Because yeah. he says it here very clearly realism has two components multiplicity and unification. So, so multiplicity is all the gathering of all those things that you need in order to assemble, and then after a lot of work it becomes unified. So it has two kinds of sides. Anything real is more than one and less than many at the same time. Yeah, but I mean, going back to the point of this question of the, you know, the observer and the human, and is it is not a correlationist or not a correlationist? My sense is of what he's talking about here that just because we are, let's say, social scientists and we record a tiny little bit of the actor network that we manage to grasp and see, that does not mean that all the meaning generation happens only in the accounts of humans. We just managed to catch and capture the tail end, you know, or manage to capture a little bit of the stuff that's happening out there. But there is, uh, you know, I, 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 but this issue of uh, other things being able to interpret, so to speak. You Can know, you mind what is correlationism? Well, okay, I mean, it's um, by this uh, young French philosopher, Meyasu, who says that, you know, one fundamental issue in philosophy that uh, hasn't been addressed yet is this question whether do you need the human observer to 
for the world to exist? Are you able to explain the world without, you know? So, so if if all humans would be extinct, you know, in a flash for whatever reason, would the universe continue to exist? And it's a big question because um, in a lot of social science stuff is kind of predicated so much on the centrality of the human observer that they cannot actually explain the world without without the humans being there, right? So, uh, is, so, so, so the, is correlationism uh, automatically, is it automatically uh, connected to the uh, 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 axis, the idea of axis? Yes, but probably. So, I mean, you're a correlationist if, according to Mayasu, if you claim that there must be human beings for the world to be there. You are a non-correlationist if you accept the fact that the world will continue to be there and was there before we crawled out of the whatever, climbed down the tree or whatever, wherever we came from, you know, as human species. That, that argues that we every, everybody agrees that uh, there is something out there even if there would not be uh, humans, but still... Uh, I mean, you say that, but uh, then, you know, um, any kind of interpretivism and take uh, practically almost any other social science you know, philosophy, none of them actually have truly come up a way to explain the world without, you know, or, or, or take that sort of realism seriously. Yeah, but why, why, why? the question is also, the, I think for me the question is, why would we need a way to explain in social sciences, which is anyway after kind of social sciences, kind of, which is somehow related to humans to me, and if we try to, why do we need to, kind of, why do we need to, why, why need to extend this to kind of explain uh, entities, kind of relationship between non-human entities that the uh, physicists are already doing quite well, so uh, kind of, of course there is something out there even if there was not. Okay, but there would be no Maybe there is only plasma. But what I mean is, well, I would say, to me, I would say there, is, there would be only plasma there. There would be nobody to name it a mountain or a world. There would be nobody to ask this question. There would be something, but kind of only humans can name that something as a world. Yeah, but I mean, let me answer your question, because you, you raised the rhetorical question, so, you know, why would we care if we are a social scientist? But there is exactly what, the reason why, because if you don't consider that, you know, the significance of non-correlationism, if you don't consider what is the consequence of the world existing prior to humans or without, or we are not actually the ones directly involved in that, you know, well, it could affect your social theory or the interpretation. It could be too anthropocentric. You know, that's the danger of not, not engaging with that kind of um, realism. But I think I'm happy to kind of consider many of kind of all the non-human entities as long as they have kind of, but to me they have still some kind of, I consider them as a social scientist, but in any way some kind of human somehow figure in the analysis, and I think that's not a bad thing. Surely kind of Latour hasn't done kind of, who has done kind of, really in our, we are anyway studying things where there are humans involved, so to me it's just not a very interesting question to kind of, uh, without humans, this question sounds very interesting. I'm not trying to advocate the sociology for a world without humans, you know, that, 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 that wasn't really my point. The point was that, you know, if you don't consider 
well, if you posit that humans as always the most futuristic thing to study, you, you, you might be, you know, going down the wrong track, in a sense. I'm, well, you know, you know well, I would say that uh, in the analysis, humans and human observer figures, uh, anyway, somehow I think it's kind of, somehow this is uh, kind of trying to get rid of the thing as if there would not be human observer, whereas I would say that when we do research, there is a human observer, so kind of that might lead to some kind of other kind of bias, and we sure. But, but let's not forget, we don't study the human observer. I mean, you don't just do social study of yourself. I mean, you want to study... Yeah, but the human observer is involved in studying sure, sure. something else, and I think that's something we have to somehow... But should not be the central point of reference, shouldn't be the central starting point. Just because there's a human observer writing an account, doesn't mean that the world has to be explained from the perspective of that human observer. You know what I mean? No, not, not necessarily, but I think kind of getting practice kind of somehow, you somehow have to kind of be able to uh, reflect how that you kind of see it, that how, how the human observer kind of figures in the analysis. And this is something that I think Action Network theory doesn't tell. And I think that that's, that's inside the, the little, the few texts I have read on Heidegger. Heidegger has been much more kind of insightful in that sense that kind of kind of offers much more in this sense that how actually what is to be in the world as a human. Well, well I mean it seems that um, sort of actual network theory for one um, trying to move on from that because there is so much of that done, you know, I mean phenomenological studies have you know, or entire psychology, and everybody is everybody is doing that kind of stuff of analyzing, you know, social construction of reality. So um, almost um, this is kind of a minority view of the actor network theory, saying, you know, let's not worry so much about how humans construct the world, uh, their life world, meaning their bubble. You know, let's try to see kind of some of the wider. Um, but then, then again, it would have a question of observer, I think. I, I feel that actually there is a sort of proposing, kind of claiming to have a sort of first eye view from above to these networks instead of really putting the observer, kind of the person doing the study in the networks, but kind of without discussing this question of observer, it's as if we could kind of somehow take a picture of this, this flat land somewhere well, above. I don't know, I think that's arguable because, first of all, that would definitely be never something that Lato would agree to that because this whole point of this entire book was to advocate the flat perspective, right? So if you say that now the observer has to be observing this from above, then that would mean really the utter complete failure uh, of, yeah. uh, of actor network theory and Latour. So the way I understand is uh, the observer is really just one of the many ants running around. Um, of course, I mean, you can critique that whether yeah, but if, way, if, if the ant is doing the accounting, then yeah. kind of in order to see that as an uh, as an ant amongst others, then you have to have external view. What I'm saying, but maybe maybe not. Maybe you are just another ant. You are talking to another ant. Let, let, let's let's leave this asthma <laughs> thing as interesting as just uh, go to the conclusion because we don't have so much time in the day. We got one more hour. Huh. Uh, well, I, uh, okay. the, the, but I mean, um, maybe it would be interesting to go to the to the conclusion of. Uh, well, I mean, I agree with you that we should get to the conclusion because that's where all the political stuff is, but maybe I think we still have to nail this plasma thing. You know, what, what actually... 
you know, maybe if we just uh, try to kind of get a closer definition on the basis of the, of the text. I, mean, I, can, I can, the definition is in page 244, and it says that the background for plasma is everything that is not yet format, formatted, not yet measured, not yet socialized, not yet engaged in meteorological chains, and not yet covered, surveyed, mobilized, or subjectified. And interestingly, 345, the footnote, where he says that there is a remarkable, in, in one of the, an article, a remarkable example of plasma before it has been turned into numbers. So it seems to have been a time where things have been, before they were formatted, and they were just unaccounted for, they were just there. I mean, this is what I was trying to, you know, make the comparison with Heidegger, that, you know, for Heidegger there is this withdrawn realm and things can disappear. Obviously, you know, people die, you know, what happens? I mean, they kind of go back into the earth, you know, and they withdraw and disappear. So it seems to be so, a place in an absence of human beings, the plasma. Well, he also says it's in between and not made of social stuff. It is not hidden, simply unknown. Unknown to who? Well, to the actor network. So it doesn't figure in the actor network, but that's still... Yeah, I, mean, I mean, you have to take the actor network as the entity that can know something, because that's his premise. I mean, he says it's not just humans who know. So, you know, in a way, uh, this cup or, you know, anything that's formatted is... Uh, uh, is, 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 a result, is, a, is a piece of knowledge or you know uh, is known to something whether you know so, so if you accept that premise then anything that's not formatted so anything that doesn't have a form but how come it's plasma mm. but yeah but still uh talks about, says, the world is not a solid continent of facts sprinkled by a few lakes of uncertainties, but a vast ocean of uncertainties speckled by a few islands of calibrated and stabilized forms. Yeah, so, so, so it suggests that a few things that actually exist, and I mean, here we're talking about an ontology, so, I mean... Well, I guess we would have to bring in the whole issue of being and nothingness. Because in Heidegger, That's you know, yeah, but I mean, Heidegger, is, is the, he defined being in, you know, he's got this essay called the, uh, What is Metaphysics? And, uh, and there he says, uh, you know, the interesting question of philosophy is why is there something rather than nothing? And then you kind of define being in against the nothing, or if something is, it can only be uh, exist against the background of nothingness, right? So, and, and of course, are we human beings interpret our daily lives well against this impending danger of death, which is sort of a big nothingness at the end of your life, you know? So you basically struggle with that, and that defines what being human is, or being mortal, is. So, um, 
But Latour was kind of suggesting a few times that there is more than just being and nothing, that there's like this whole range of intermediate existence. But, but, but anyway, I mean, I think that he seems to be Latour's idea. But, but even for Heidegger, the nothing is something productive, almost that nothing produces something, or something, you know, ex nihilio, things come to be. If something comes to be, well, I'm just kind of not sure what I'm talking about, but, uh, you know, when something co- comes to be, although it seems like it emerged out of nothing, but even that nothing was something. Because <laughs> for something to emerge, it had to emerge from something else. So, 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 so this seems to be kind of Latour's maybe answer to that, in the sense that where do things emerge? I mean, if you assemble one big, huge network, I don't know, let's say a big company, well, Google, you know, I mean, if you say, what the hell is Google? Where was it 10 years ago? Where was it 10 years ago? There's nowhere it didn't exist, right? Or was it like a five-year-old company or something? Or YouTube, you know. Suddenly, it's an entity with all this money and power, and it's a huge actor in the world. I mean, one of the most important actors, you could say, you know, in 2007 or whatever it is now. So, um, where did it come from? So, in a way, it was assembled, and it can collapse and disappear just as quickly. So, did those things, uh, were those things, uh, well, but, but, yeah, so it seems to be this kind of vast unformatted ocean out there, which gets formatted in every encounter. That's, uh, I would guess traditional sociologists would say that the plasma is the society. I guess that's, that's kind of, uh, that would uh, make quite a lot of, uh, well, not necessarily exactly, but kind of here I see the society act agency uh, distinction, you know, or it, it could be. But you know, could kind of uh, build that kind of an uh, argument that that's what the kind of sociologists, good sociologists are actually studying is the plus one. So the sort of, uh, yeah. well, well, I mean, the big, big criticism, of course, of the traditional sociology is that it only considered humans, right? That's still valid criticism that the plasma is not obviously made of social stuff as we know it, and that's, that's very valid still. But, uh, so, so add the non-humans into it? Yeah, but uh, the sociologists never claim to kind of, I guess, just whether social theory, whether you study social classes or family or whatever, this kind of institutional combination or you never kind of you study you take sort of perspective or kind of uh, aspect of plasma then this is now kind of just playing with this idea of plasma or kind of seeing if it could fit into this kind of uh, uh, conception well I mean I think it's an interesting point to raise I mean I'm just saying if you add the non-humans into that soup you know, uh, so if that's society, but now society is not society, but it's a collective of, you know, but, but the collective is already something assembled, Latour yes, says, exactly. so the plasma cannot be that, no. you know. Maybe to move in, move on, and if we move into this, well, what does it mean for politics, and maybe if that helps yeah. um, interpret this issue of plasma. I mean, one interesting reference to the plasma is on 252, which, uh, I mean, he doesn't name it as plasma, I think, but I think that's what he's alluding to. 
at the bottom of 252, he says, uh, you know, it's, it's, and in this critique of traditional sociology, so if traditional sociology def defines society as the total, right? So with, re with respect to the total, there is nothing to do except to genuflect before it. So, I mean, if you work with the conception of, or the concept of society, and you say it's oppressing the individual, uh, there's nothing you can do politically against it because, uh, you know, all you can do is it says genuflect or to dream of occupying the place of complete power, which is exactly what the Marxists did, you know, so the Soviets. Uh, so, so there was Lenin and all those guys, right? What did they do? They just replaced the Tsar and were practically, you know, you could argue they were just as bad as the previous regime. So they replaced politically, politically they just replaced, and of course that was a totalitarian notion of society. So, so they occupy the power. I think it would be much safer to claim, so for actor network theory, that action is possible only in a territory that has been opened up, flattened down and cut down to size in a place where formats, structures, globalization and totalities circulate inside tiny conduits. So he's saying that it would be politically a better thing to think about society as circulating, where, where it's about entities making contact with entities and you kind of trace. So, so rather than say social class, let's see what makes up. Um, you know, what are all the assemblages and actions that make up, that turn this neighborhood poor, you know, rather than just say that they're so, you know. But then the next sentence is, and where for each of their applications they need to rely on masses of hidden potentialities. And this is what I think is a key reference to plasma. So, so what he's saying is that by pursuing politics a la actor network theory, which is basically tracing the actual links between the production of sites, so, so I'm just using this example again of uh, this poor neighborhood, you know, and a deprived neighborhood. And you want to understand why is it deprived, and you start tracing the links, and you realize it is deprived because, you know, all these very specific, let's say, policies or, or devices or tools that make people live in that neighborhood, etc., etc. But what's interesting here that he says that that sort of analysis is making uses of plasma. And also that plasma is this mass of hidden potentialities. Because, you know, how he criticized this idea of potential, or that things don't have potential, and the plasma seems to have potential. So, so it's almost like seems to me that what he's saying here, that if you are a social scientist and you go out and let's say you do an actor network theory study of poverty, by discovering and tracing these making explicit the links through which a particular site is produced, so let's say it's made in a working class neighborhood, you are actually mobilizing this plasma, you're drawing on, you're creating obviously a new world in the sense that by tracing those links, you are possibly able to contribute to changing that social situation. Which is the claim now of, you know, how come we can have, you know, 
uh, global warming becoming such an agenda everywhere, and you know, number of because people have traced the links, or or what people buy, uh, you know, uh, environmentally friendly coffee or socially responsible coffee, they buy it now because people understand the links because social scientists make the links explicit that by buying cheap coffee you make other people poor, you know. But that's actually based on very uh, uh, traditional uh, social analysis. Well, how do you know? I mean, this well, no, the no, no, has been around, you know. No, but for honestly, most of the uh, the kind of the the the, the uh, criticism of uh, uh, world trade has not been done on the basis of uh, actor network. Yeah, they have been very traditional political economy analysis. Well, I think that well, I think that. The, well, first of all, I don't think that every single, you know, even Latour himself doesn't, call, I mean, he cites all these other studies which wouldn't consider themselves being actor network theory studies, hmm. who he thinks are, in principle, following this understanding. But I think he would contra. But I think there was also just a lot of critical sociology studies which would say that, oh, you know, capitalism, this and that, and blah, 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 and those were not very helpful. What's much more helpful is, I mean, if somebody traced the link, you know, I mean, I don't think it's accidental that why is this uh, fair trade chocolates and fair trade uh, coffee, why it has just come up last year or two or three years ago. I mean, it was practically non-existent, this whole notion of fair trade. It has, must have something to do with social scientists becoming more aware of performative aspects of, you know, Sociology and uh, I mean you know even uh, Calon's uh, uh, study of the markets. I mean it's been around for ten years and even some of the other stuff. So so, so I would argue what people doing in the department of sociology where I used to be that and uh, those my girlfriend studied those things and she was at the department of development studies and they didn't do active network theory mm-hmm. and you can you can kind of do pretty kind of. Uh, traditional analysis showing that in the global market when the kind of uh, because of the fluctuation in the prices in the markets kind of mean that the money that is uh, paid to the uh, uh, to the producers falls below the uh, the the price they need to kind of to produce in that so I would say that Nobody has said that. I have at least I haven't seen a single actor network study doing that. So this passage comes in, in a certain. I mean, he's actually answering two of the or a th- couple of the criticism that has been raised against the anti. Actually, I find it a little bit uh, sad that he, he has such a only two pages of, um, referring to that criticism. So maybe it would be a good idea to look at the criticism. How he how he tries to answer them. That then comes this passage that we're talking about. Absolutely fair to say that it, it's kind of the, the development of studies are very much kind of quite heavily influenced by traditional political economy, like Immanuel Lauristan's uh, well systems theory and, and that kind of uh, approaches. So uh, that doesn't this is necessarily discredit. This that, that kind of things couldn't be done in, in, in different way, but I think uh, saying that those approaches have kind of uh, don't have sort of political relevance at all is uh, I think to say that kind of there is no empirical 
empirical world at least contradicts that kind of uh, position? Well, I mean, maybe it's just not helpful to use these labels that, you know, I mean, whether something has to be called, or somebody has to say, oh, I'm conducting an active network here. I mean, you can still do, as long as you actually follow some of the principles of tracing the connections, which is what active network theory advocates, but you don't have to be an active network theory scientist to, to do that. So, I mean, as long as, so I mean, the big, big thing was that, well, no, I mean, why didn't people trace these connections and try to work out? Uh, I, mean, I mean, the whole fair trade movement seems to me very much using a particular type of sociology and, and understand the performative effect of that sort of politics, you know, that you, you change, you, you really change things, not by, I don't know, you know, demonstrating in front of universities or whatever, but uh, by actually tracing this entire link back to the farm and, and making this link explicit to the consumer, you know, and um, so, so it doesn't matter whether it's called active network theory or not or whatever, you know. But, uh, well, you know, you sense, yes, but uh, what I'm just saying that they are to many of these people because I know them. And kind of the, I know the people who used to run at the Fair Trade Association in Finland. My girlfriend was the chairman of the, uh, the, the Voluntary Association. So I know them and they have been inspired by the very kind of the bad sociology uh, Latu criticizes here. So maybe they have been, they have been, that's true that they have been also praising the associations, but they have been inspired by the very, uh, they have not been inspired by active network theory. So, uh, so, uh, all in all, I agree with many of the, uh, the uh, Latour's criticism on the, uh, in the in theoretical, the, the, the critical sociology, because it, uh, uh, to me, Lato puts it a little bit different way, but kind of, the kind of being able to show what the world is and then say, but okay, the actors themselves can kind of see it in a wrong way, I, I know how it should be. That's uh, uh, problematic, but uh, well, well, actually, another, um, I mean, with that sort of, uh, well, well, maybe I'm just, uh, maybe let's just sort of maybe discuss that. Still, something in controversy, a matter of fact, that's stabilized. Mm -hmm. 
But, but the problem is... Explicitation is, in a way, making things a matter of fact. And in that sense, it is political. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, no, I agree with you. But, but it's, 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 I think it's critique of traditional sociology will tell you sort of start out from the matters of fact, while he seems to say, be saying that no, you have to start out from the controversy mm. and then you stabilize it in your account mm. to say, now, you know, this is, this is the matter of fact, but as an outcome of my study, not that I accept them, those categories ready-made or, or something like that. But uh, maybe let's get back to your suggestion of looking at these critiques that you've uh, asked for. So maybe it's the bottom of 251. So he says, and is accused of two symmetric and contradictory sins. One, that he extends politics everywhere, including the inner sanctum of science and technology. And the second, that he's so indifferent to inequalities and power struggles that it offers no critical leverage being content only to connive with those in power. So these are the two main criticisms. Somehow I feel that, uh, because if I end, if it's sort of uh, empirical metaphysics, so very, uh, in a way, abstract, if, if it's a philosophy, let's say, put it cruelly, there is, in, in, when we go about in, in, in studies, studying the world, we usually need something in between the philosophy and the world, and that's where we have theories. You don't take positivism and apply positivism and study well, positive, kind of more positivistical, but you usually have some kind of theories in between. So maybe it is that uh, ANT kind of, it doesn't actually necessarily compete so much with this social uh, social theories that Latour likes to uh, criticize okay that was a sidestep side yeah well I mean just to build on to that I mean he actually at some point suggests that um, you can be a traditional sociologist if you adopt this methodology you can just turn around <laughs> you know you can still sort of do the work that you did before but you do it in a enhanced way so to speak or you turn your mode of working around that, that seems to make somehow sense, because obviously uh, you can be critical realist or constructivist, but you still need something in between when you go about in studying the world. You don't get much out if you have critical realism. Then I look at the world, you don't get much uh, out of it in practice. And here, But here I, I wonder a little bit, why, why would, if this really is a kind of metaphysics, why would it has to be kind of politically relevant? This is what in the first place, uh, uh, bugs me that kind of does it have to be in any kind of where obviously Platon is once again kind of defining the word politics you know, in his own way. But does it have to be politically relevant? I don't. Uh, in that well, sense, I mean that's a that's a huge question, and uh, but, but I mean it comes down to then questions of any relevance whatsoever. You know, why do you do anything? So, and then it's, it's, it's kind of a new, you know, new, new uh, well, there's this whole distinction in the past of, okay, the philosophers are in their ivory towers, the politicians do their thing, and the businessmen do their thing, and, you know. Uh, so, 
so the intellectuals are not engaged or what mm. one tradition I mean this whole you know, he, he criticizes this French uh, the French tradition of the engaged intellectual you know that uh, you know France, France and a lot of other European continental European countries are minorities in Israel but uh, you know that you have this group of people who call themselves intellectuals and then they constantly go on television and to deliver this critique <laughs> and, I mean even in my culture we have this whole you know these people actually call themselves, you know, I am an intellectual. While in uh, British or North American, Anglo-Saxon, well, that's just, you know, it doesn't exist. You know, it doesn't exist. I mean, in Britain, there isn't an intellectual class. That, but no one would dare to go on television and say, I am an intellectual. It's derogatory. If you say about something, I'm an intellectual, it means not connected to the world. Yeah, so, 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 uh, so I think that emerged probably from some old distinction between, you know, academia and the rest of the world, or intellectuals and the rest of the world. So, and of course, Heidegger, if you, if you look at Heidegger and him being such a big and important philosopher and ended up in the Nazi movement, you know, well, you have, you have to ask the question, what is the relationship between, you know, philosophy, metaphysics, whatever, or any science, or, or universities and politics, and, and uh, so, 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 of course, it just comes to a point where, you know, uh, you're in a world where everything is political. So, I mean, because why bother doing something social science if you don't want to change the world somehow? But, okay, but then, then again, it's just about uh, relevance, because if everything is political, then nothing is political anymore. If you don't make any distinctions, then it's a question about relevance. Yeah. I, I think, I think it's that easy to agree that it has to be relevant but somehow. Who participates in, you know, political decisions? How do people participate in political decisions? How are resources distributed? You know, um, questions of fairness, um, all this stuff that social scientists have been always concerned about. You know, so in a way, it's a huge question because what actually Latour is suggesting that the previous way of doing sociology was in fact so successful that it performed a particular type of uh, politics. You know, and, and then the, this kind of politics where, um, well, that these certain forms that they created or certain categories or standards then, you know, format the way science or, or politics is done. That, that's, that's obvious because politics kind of to control society as a, some kind of aggregate as a whole and that's what social sciences generally have been providing tools, conceptual tools. So in that sense, that is, that is I guess, very uh, true. Well, I mean, in, in, in the UK, uh, you know, especially under this government, this is one of the big issues that, you know, every time some problem pops up in schools or in healthcare or whatever, uh, these ministers come out and say, oh, here's a new policy, and we're going to go entirely top-down and regulate what's going to happen in, you know, in every single school in the entire country. So, um, and of course, we're talking about this at the London School of Economics, where, you know, uh, Lord Giddens, you know, his sociology inspired the labor movement and the third way, you know, Tony Blair and all this. So, so actually, the links are very strong between the LSE and the current UK government, you know. So, uh, so, so how do you actually participate as a social scientist in, in uh, politics is a big, big question. What's the political relevance of what you study and what you do? 
So what does he say about that? So what's his answer to the, these criticisms? Well, I mean, are you happy about these criticisms? Because, I mean, he, on one set, so, so, so on one set, there were the scientists who did not like the idea that SDS suggested there was politics everywhere. That yes, that basically scientists in the laboratory were political animals, and you know what you actually discover and how you get your funds and how you decide what is a fact is a huge political so, you know, system. Put it bluntly, the bacteria was in, was became a bacteria only because of political, let's say, political kind of pressures or forces. So, so that scientific scientific facts are socially constructed. Yes. Or yeah, or constructed. Which is obviously what the, what the scientists didn't like, that idea. And the other ones were saying that um, there was not enough politics because he was too materialistic in a sense. He gave too much power to the things. Well, I think it's also this second criticism is the criticism of the critical sociology, saying that ANT is not concerned enough about... <coughs> So going, going out there and changing the world in the, in, the, in the sense of you know addressing the radical inequalities in the world and uh, doing sort of the activist type of um, politics. Mm. So and then of course the even worse criticism, which I think you know well, that's an interesting one, the Machiavellianism of mm-hmm. ANT, that ANT actually <coughs> becomes a tool in the hands of consultants. Or, or powerful people to become even more powerful. You know, so so is is the uh, uh, discourse of uh, emancipation, or you know, I mean, that's what's in critical sociology is the big thing about having an emancipatory discourse, so that people you come up with something that can make people feel free or or freer. Uh, and now they say that ANT actually has done the opposite. If you, if you learn ANT, you can go around manipulating people and you become even more powerful. So, uh, what do you think about that? I think, um, okay, ANT is maybe a good tool, but if we take it as a methodology, it shouldn't kind of, it is a tool, kind of, you can use positivism for many different, you can do uh, positivistic studies for many purposes, so does it really have to uh, have sort of uh, emancipatory agenda in that sense. I, I agree with that it has to be, kind of be able to be somehow relevant, but uh, I don't see these criticisms particularly. Kind of, I have no, I've read that this study repeated many places, and I don't find them very interesting. I think they are just kind of misunderstanding that or kind of almost kind of purposely kind of kind of misreading and I don't see. I mean, to be fair, we should actually read uh, the criticism themselves, like opening the black box and seeing empty from winner and the other, you know, because maybe what Latour is doing is taking this criticism and reducing them into a... Into a you know, there's the, there's the David Lord's yeah. anti-Latour, kind of at least those three criticisms are out there. But I don't find these kind of... What is Machiavellism kind of... Uh, well, I mean, again, well, actually, that, that's sort of a. I mean, the way I understand it, I mean, people use the term Machiavellism, but that's not necessarily actually consistent with what was written in the 
work of Machiavelli, but Machiavelli wrote that book, you know, The Prince, for the prince to tell him how to rule, and, and uh, well, it became a metaphor because people interpreted of what he said to, because he said to the prince, you know, when you need to be tough, you need to be tough or whatever, when you need to do things that are not necessarily easy or moral-seeming, you have to do that. Yeah, so sometimes you have to do to hurt people to stay in power. Now, that, that, now that's being interpreted as being, uh, uh, you know, uh, evil, manipulatory. But this is exactly the point. In reality, we have very little morality. It doesn't speak about morality or ethical issues or stuff like well, that. Well, what you can argue against Machiavelli is that uh, his uh, selection of the topic, you could kind of argue that you shouldn't choose certain kind of topics. But uh, have you read the book? Which one? The Machiavelli's Prince. Um, I read it ages ago, uh, but I don't think I understood it very well, so I think I'll definitely going to read it again. <laughs> I read it a couple of years ago. It's, more, it's nice book. it's very short, you know. And uh, I think, I, it's, like you said, it's kind of basically guidebook how to rule. Okay, you can then say that, especially after several years when the, kind of the, the world has changed, if we put it into this context now, and uh, contextualize into current well, then it can look like this, but I, I think this. But, but I think it doesn't even that says apply to A and T. That A and T doesn't say anything about kind of how it should be used. Kind of Machiavelli wrote it as a tool for ruler to rule, but it, this A and T doesn't say who should use it and how for what purposes. So in that sense, I think that it's simply misplaced the criticism. But I think yeah. in the sense that you're trying to, that each actor in the network is trying to align as many, you know, other actors in its network in order to gain. So power is in the sense, is understood in the sense of how many, you know, connections you have to other actors and how thick they are. Yeah, but on the other hand, for me that idea is that it's, it's no more moral or amoral or immoral than kind of two masses kind of pulling each other kind of closer to each other. But maybe that's exactly the point, that it yeah. not, does not have any, you know, it doesn't have, have any relationship to morality. Just yeah, like yeah, precisely, yeah, I don't know if it should have. Well, um, well I think, uh, maybe I'm not sure I agree, I mean, I wouldn't agree with the claim that, I mean, maybe Latour doesn't talk about morality in this book or in this particular instance, but I mean, I think that there is a project here to re-ground morality or put morality on a different foundation in the sense that, um, r rather than use some sort of traditional notion of what is supposed to be moral or amoral. So if you now, and I'm kind of talking about the last, the end here in the conclusion where, you know, this, this notion of uh, coming up with a new, you know, the new type of parliament, the parliament of things, I mean, it doesn't actually spell this out too much here, but here first is that, you know, in some of his previous projects and kind of the, uh, what is it called, about the nature of uh, that book. Politics of nature, and then that exhibition they had. He has this notion of um, having a new kind of parliament where actually non human issues or entities are also represented. And I mean, you know, he made that uh, joke about it at that event, saying that he became an object of ridicule in France because now they are uh, citing him in. Uh, University saying, oh, you know, Latour wants uh, every tree and rock to have its own <laughs> representative in Parliament. <laughs> so, so that's sort of the misinterpretation of his point. But the idea being that 
right now representation, political representation is very one-sided. That there's just all these very narrow human issues being represented by parliamentarians in parliaments. So how about having a parliament where you bring in issues like, I don't know, the whales, you know, getting extinct, or issues of, um, I don't know, global warming, or the ozone hole having, having its representatives. And so you've got a group of people representing that issue. You know, not necessarily that, obviously, the tree has a... <laughs> but, 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 I mean, why couldn't the Amazon forest have... You know, isn't that a huge problem, actually? There's no representative for the Amazon forest, so it's being chopped down right now like crazy. And um, that's a problem. It's a problem for humans. Um, well, and, and everybody else. I mean, why, why wouldn't, uh, you know, primates and cats and dogs, uh, you know, I mean, in a way, it affects them as well. I mean, it's, if if um, there's some sort of global, you know, extinction, <laughs> it's not going to be good. Of course, you're concerned about our own own uh, human, you know, lives, but I would say there is wider interests as well. I think yeah. Once again, I'm kind of trying to get rid of this human uh, observer point kind of tends to somehow lead kind of somehow mm, I'm not sure if those are so kind of useful uh, positions like 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 Latour has been kind of this kind of reformative or kind of redoing the whole philosophy of epistemology, ontology, then he kind of wants to redo the social sciences and if he still wants to do kind of the redo morality that's uh, that's a big project, I would say. And but, but they're all interrelated, aren't they all? Don't, I mean, it's an issue that actually, in, in the old days, I mean, in the, even in the philosophy department, a different guy used to teach logic, somebody else teaches epistemology, someone else teaches something else, and uh, actually there's no, not much communication between these various areas, and the point maybe is that you need to consider all of this together. You know? we, we, we talked about this, that the end is highly amoral, in the sense well, that, well, well, you be careful with that word. I mean, what do you mean, amoral? Well, it just has yeah. nothing. It says nothing of morality, and it's very silent about morality. So, so even just looking at its very relativistic, very you know, radically relativistic point of view, you would say that even you know we have uh, different different networks. We have their different moral kind of uh, standing moralities. And you can, there's no absolute morality against which you can judge uh, the different moralities, and they are uh, they are in a power struggle, you know, a, a fierce power struggle. The one that will win, so the might is right, and according to according to you know. This is very Machiavellian. Okay, well, I mean, the counter um, argument there would be that, let's say, in the in the previous or let's say the, the traditional forms of um, morality, again you could argue that, well yes, there's this system of morality which acts like one big uh, intermediary, or how to put it, you know, that, 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 that's, that's also bad if moral judgments or whatever are based on some kind of a fixed principle that are considered right or correct without being questioned. So isn't it more moral in the sense of, or more ethical for actors to actually consider whether they are mediators or intermediaries? And um, I mean, I had a little email exchange about this issue actually with uh, Graham um, a while ago. 
and we were discussing this issue, you know, when people say that I was just doing my job, you know. So when you are the prison guard, or, you know, you were the guy who was the soldier in Iraq, you know, and you say, well, I just went out and shot all these people in the village, because I was just doing my job, because my, you know, somebody was telling me. So now you, you were an intermediary, so to speak, or you acted as, or you interpreted yourself being an intermediary conducting somebody else's action. So morality very much comes to the foreground when, you know, you are made to consider, let's say, as a human being, you know, I'm not sure I'm interpreting, you know, what actor network theory right or what I was thinking right, but I'm just speculating that perhaps this issue of uh, the power of the intermediary to turn into a mediator is, is an is a ethical and a political question. You know, when you say what is the right thing here, do I do what the state tells me to do or I think that's actually wrong? And I'll, and I'll do something else. That's, that's a good point. Because I mean, you know, you, know, you, know, you, know, you don't need necessarily to uh, kind of... Uh, well, that, that's... Uh, it is a good point, kind of, in, in that sense that if there is less mediators and more, sorry, less intermediaries and more mediators, kind of also distributes responsibility. Mm. But still, kind of detaching morality uh, from humans and human observers have slight uh, uh, problems with. Well, I, I see a difficult project. To list, because uh, in practice, what is the morality for a stone? Kind of yeah. Mm, yeah, I'm not sure if that's necessarily you know how to what what, what Latour is suggesting. But I mean, if you if you look at let's say the United States and the fact that let's say the religious right has been in power for the last whatever eight years, mm. right, and that is the party and the president who refused to engage with the first number, practically one of the first thing was say I'm not signing the Kyoto Agreement, you know. And uh, so these intensely moral people consider themselves moral and whatever, but we're not uh, even willing to engage with the idea of global warming, even to accept that it exists, you know. Uh, because, and, and, and so not accept the agency of well, or, 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 or the existence of this quasi-object, you know, or the existence of, or, or having responsibility for the rest of the world, you know, and how to put it, what's the, what's the, I mean, you can go, I don't know, go and uh, feel very moral in your human ways, but uh, that necessarily leads to good moral ethical decisions. This, you, you presume that there are good moral ethical positions in an absolute kind of way. Uh, no, I don't. Um. Look, imagine that, uh, example, the Second World War, the, the you know, Hitler and the Germany would have won, and the whole idea of the race as, a, as, a, as an agenda would have been, you know, practiced throughout the world. It would be a reality. It would be, you know, part of the real... So race would have a place in morality. You know, the question that people of different races have different kind of value, that would be a matter of fact, and that would be the reality. Uh, and and, and in, in that sense, it would be as moral as any other, just it happened to be that not their agenda has one, but another agenda, and therefore yeah, there is... Well, I mean, I mean uh, you, could, you, could, you could view World War II and 
I mean, you've, or that particular question as being one of these trials, so to speak. That I mean, that was a matter of concern. That let's say the Nazis wanted to make a matter of fact, yeah. saying it is a matter of fact that some people are superior right. to some others, etc. And then there is this uh, ranking of mm. you know human species, and this is how we should govern in a very pyramidic shape, you know, or, or, or structure. And uh, and the fact that there was actually a, a war about that, and not just a little one, but you know, a huge bust up which involved also a huge amount of people being displaced and ideas moving around and circulating and all this stuff. And, uh, and in, a, in a way, of course, a certain um, ethical position came out of that. Because to some extent that question was, you know, not, not, not resolved, but that's the right word, but clearly uh, certain positions were no longer possible after World War II. And you could probably say that, I don't know, the um, whole civil rights movement in, in the United States, you know, with you know, black people, feminism, etc., probably had something to do with, you know, the, 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 with, with all of that process. I mean, I would, well, if I understand you are correct, kind of, we don't get from that, kind of, we feel very much uh, guidance in this moral sense, and I tend to uh, agree with you. So, had they are uh, Nazis win, uh, we would according to Actor Network theory, Actor Network could say anything about kind of which one are, then we would have had different morality. But it's not, it's purpose. It doesn't, it doesn't, yeah. no, well, I disagree. I don't think it purports to be, in fact, that's the whole strength of, of Actor Network theory as a, as a methodology, because it does not say that there are these kind of uh, particular principles that now, you know, we declare to be right. Instead, it says that these issues need to be battled out. You know, battled in the sense that this is, there's these trials, and it's through going through this uh, process that morality gets established. So, why, um, why, do, why do I claim now that you know, throwing out rubbish or using too much, uh, you know, driving a four-wheel drive is unethical? I can only make that statement because of acceptance of this existence of this quasi-object of global warming. Do you know what I mean? So, so, so almost something that needs to be assembled first before you can. Uh, also, sort of the moral judgments come not a priori, but kind of through 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 that um, through that test of, of assembling that um, object. I don't know. I mean, that's not, I guess that's a, a slightly different way how we understand, uh, at least in traditional morality, that uh, morality comes somehow before this kind of criteria for judging the acts, and not only afterwards, I guess that's the, the, that's the, that's the exact critique, right, of the intermediate, you know, that's this whole book about that way of thinking, that there is something established which you use as a reference point, and then on the basis of that you make, because people on the basis of the Bible make horrendous, uh, you know, crimes. <laughs> I mean, they commit, commit all kinds of. I understand. You know, then I would say that, that, that in that sense, yes, actually, book theory has kind of uh, it can be um, used to 
moral only in a descriptive sense. It can describe how these things become to be kind of good and bad, but it doesn't prescribe what is good and bad. Academic work doesn't guide us in a pre- moral in a prescriptive way uh, in, in, in moral yeah. issues. And this legitimate dis- distinction data you can kind of study morality and ethics in either in descriptive and prescriptive way. But uh, it's also possible to make an argument that we need so that there must be I guess quite many people believe that there must be some kind of prescriptive ethics and morality also. And for that question, actually, it doesn't seem to answer, give, give answer, but very well in the prescriptive sense, it can kind of describe how these things become to be taken as good and bad. But this is, this is exactly very equivalent to the problem of science, because uh, after science has been, I mean, after Pasteur, uh, the microbes, whatever verb you want to use, we say that a priori they have always been microbes. In the same way, we can say, okay, after this question whether races are equal yeah. uh, has been resolved through Second World War, we say that pri- after it has been resolved, we only say that a priori it has always been the case that all races were, mm. were equal. But this is only because we delude ourselves, in a sense, by reconstructing or rewriting the past you know, only from the view of, of today. Yeah, well, if I can get back to that and then to your original point of what would have happened if the Nazis would have won and what uh, would action network theory have to do with that. I mean, on page 260, uh, and this is where he kind of describes the political project of ANT. So maybe we should take this seriously. Yeah. It says in the middle of the page, this is what I take to be the political project of ANT. What I mean by a search for political relevance. Once the task of exploring the multiplicity of agencies is completed, another question can be raised. What are the assemblies of those assemblages? Okay, so he says, ANT, first of all, you need to trace the multiplicity of agencies. So you're trying to, by, by putting an account together, you're kind of trying to identify all the variety of agencies uh, contributing to a certain phenomenon, producing a certain site. Mm. Uh, that site could be, I mean, if we take the, the Nazi example, well, that could be the site of, um, you know, whatever the headquarters of, I mean, the, 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 the actual, well, actual Nazi Germany or the, uh, the site of uh, uh, the Nazi ideology, wherever that was produced. And so the next question is then, you know, who, who are the agencies involved in assembling the Nazi ideology? Then the next question is, what are the assemblies of those assemblages, which I, which I interpret this way, how and where and by whom where the assemblage is assembled. Okay? So, if the Nazi party and its ideology is an assemblage, or assemblage, uh, where are the specific sites where they've been assembled? Is it in, uh, you know, uh, where there are a couple of, you know, universities, or where there are a couple of, um, you know, think tanks, or, you know, was it in a, yeah. by a group of uh, people in a particular town? I mean, that it has to be a local site, and it's, you identify where, who are these people, and, and entities, and, you know, ideas, and you name it, mm. 
which in the end assembled this monster. You know, obviously, but uh, kind of, I have to say that uh, in kind of uh, AMT doesn't actually help us to make the value judgment yes. that whether Nazis were good or bad. It doesn't help us in any uh, way. But I mean, he. Well, I think that you can make a statement that there are, you know, that some assemblages are um, better than others. But they are better only in the sense that they are stronger or weaker. He, he, he throughout his writings, he says that their assemblages are only, our collectives are only stronger and weaker. He doesn't point in anywhere that quite well, how to make value judgment. They are well built or less well built? Yeah. They are well assembled or. Yeah. Well, yeah. don't hold. But I, I think this is not necessarily a problem but for yeah. Ambrose because it, if it's a methodology, it doesn't have to kind of necessarily answer this kind of question. Unless but, there but is something about the morality of like equality that makes that makes a uh, population stronger. So maybe you could say that there is kind of a morality that strengthens. Strength is the building and it is inherently more superior in a sense, in the sense that it is. Um, well, the thing is, if you study how assemblages are assembled and where assemblages are assembled, you as the social scientist are making these links explicit. I mean, how many people claim that they did not know about the concentration camps? You know, I mean, even in even in uh, within Germany, or uh, I mean, uh, you know, because I'm from Slovakia, so there was recently, I mean, there's this controversial film that you know has been tracing kind of how the Slovak government was involved in the decision to uh, basically negotiate with the Germans to sell for a specific amount each Jewish family or something like this, right? And uh, so. Uh, now, now this film was aired somewhere and it's available on the internet and um, it's upsetting a lot of people and, you know, and, but even there um, you know, tracing because those links were not being made I mean, if the social scientists can have political relevance and construct morality by identifying these links maybe it's not for you to determine what's moral or not moral but, but by constructing and making the links visible obviously the other people and the other actors can um, also, you know, that, that's true that before you make a moral judgment, you have to know the facts. This is very basic from the philosophy, basic philosophical, moral, ethic, moral philosophy courses. Uh, and in that sense, uh, AMT can have a lot of relevance, I would agree. But still, the kind of the criteria to judge whether uh, uh, this is good or bad, that, that doesn't, I, I mean, I don't see anything in AMT helping to but actually, now, suddenly I think, for example, a totally different example is from you know, the Israeli uh, oppression of Palestine. And there are a lot of works now in, in Israel that are talking about the fact that the mere fact of oppression of another nation has a, a corrupting kind of force which makes the whole institution, the whole institution kind of not, not strong enough. As a you know, as a network, maybe. So just maybe there are kind of there is a morality that, that weakens the the network, a bad morality that weakens the network and doesn't let it stay on for very for very long. Maybe, for example, the Soviet morality, whatever that was, had a built-in uh, problem that created a weakness in the whole system 
And so there is a connection between the strength of the system and the morality of it. But then the challenge is that then we uh, if, uh, somehow we end up in a situation where a strong system is a, once again is uh, might equals right. So maybe that's okay. Maybe well, maybe maybe the Nazis didn't win because their morality was maybe the morality. Well, you can make that kind of uh, argument, but then it kind of takes away the. Uh, Kind of somewhat, um, I don't know. That's just one way of arguing. I actually. Well, I think that ANT seems to be, in my mind, in favor of democracy, because, or at least Latour, because it is arguing for this parliament of things, and it is arguing for a, a better mechanism for representation. You know, and claiming that the way things are represented now are, you know, and moving beyond the silly suggestion of every tree and rock having its own, you know, uh, center, uh, you could really see that, um, yes, indeed. I mean, the way um, even now, you know, who becomes a member of parliament in Britain, you know, I mean, it, it is, but <laughs> by the very nature of the type of people, you know, why is even half, why is even almost the entire uh, Labour government's cabinet? all privately educated and practically more than half of them from Oxford and Cambridge. I mean, why are they from the most privileged of educational backgrounds? You know, I mean, it is... Uh, so, 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 so then, okay, however much they care about, you know, the social issues that they claim to be caring about, but it's not necessarily the most representative of, of systems. Um, so, so what I'm trying to say is that maybe all this morality is that, well, maybe you have to let the actors decide for themselves the morality by involving them, you know. So, well, when you had slavery, the slaves did not have representation, you know. And what was the outcome of, of you know, it, and it just came to a point where um, actually representation was one of the issues. Or, or the suffragettes, you know, the, um, the women's uh, liberation movement. Again, women did not have voting rights. and. That was one of the crucial issues that sort of you know, in, in, enabled social change or Aborigines in Australia, you know, it would kind of go on. That in a way, representation is kind of at the heart of it. You know, how do you... And all these people who were excluded probably felt wronged, you know. Mm. I, I mean, what? I don't, I just, I'm just thinking about whether actor network theory kind of... Uh, whether it has to take kind of stake on all these, all these uh, things, I find kind of as a more kind of narrowly kind of frame approach, I find it more uh, credible and maybe uh, yeah uh, usable. I like the idea that kind of tracing the kind of these links you actually showed how they run not actually. There are many things that are not intermediaries, but they are a lot of mediators. I think that's the sort of thing that can contribute to many good things. But uh, I'm happy to stay take it as a sort of amoral method that doesn't kind of say anything about how the world should be. No single thing, no single approach should kind of explain and kind of Otherwise, it's almost the Bible. It tells the world how, how the world is and how we must study it and how kind of 
what's the right moral kind of it doesn't have to do all that. Sure, but well, I, mean, I mean the reason I was protesting against the amoral description because I think in, in English amoral means you know the opposite of moral which means immoral, uh, immoral I guess. Or isn't it? Well, I don't know. Maybe it doesn't. Um, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you're right. Maybe that's immoral. But I was just, I don't know, I didn't feel comfortable with the suggestion that it somehow doesn't care about morality or negates morality. It's almost as a different approach to morality that morality is the outcome, not, not sort of the starting point. Um, it, in in, in that sense, it can be, I can be, I think, like, like we discussed, can be used to study morality. But I would, say, I would say that we need morality kind of necessarily kind of includes something else also than this study with as an outcome. I, th I think where he uh, talks about this uh, uh, topic the most, or at least I read, is the first chapter of, uh, of Pandora's box, if you remember. This guy that talks, is asking what is reality. And, and then he talks about this debate between uh, Socrates and this other guy. And one is saying that uh, that, it, 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 uh, that which you can measure should govern, you know, should decide what is a fact, what is real, what is not real. I think that's Socrates. And the other one says those who are rich should decide what is a fact and what, like, what should be decided. And then, and nobody talks about Latour's view. And, and Latour is actually uh, criticizing both of them. And he's saying not the rich should rule and not the, the measurements, should, not the objects should rule, but the masses, right? So who is more powerful in the sense of gaining more, you know, actors to his network? That is what is defining, you know, morality or, or scientific fact or whatever. So if I, if I, if I am lucky enough or, or competent enough to, to to assemble a huge network of people to believe that morality is this and that, then that is the definition of morality or scientific fact or, you know, whatever. Well, that sounds like that would be a criticism of AMT then. I mean, that would point to Why? Why? Um, well, in that sense, the, the Nazis would have been able, just because on, on, on being able to mobilize a lot of people and convince a lot of people about their own point of view. But they have, but have maybe one of the reasons is that... have made them... Or moral, or his power is whatever the right is might, or might is right. Which is, of course, you know, I mean, uh, people who grew up in totalitarian systems, you know, I'm sure wouldn't like that. So <laughs> I wouldn't agree with that characterization that, you know, might is right. And uh, maybe that's what contributes to the fall of totalitarian systems, as you suggested before. Uh, I mean, maybe one last, because uh, I have to run and catch my train, but the, the last maybe provocative or puzzling thing that seems to be emerging here is this notion of cosmopolitics. Says, to use another ambiguous term, we might just have to engage in cosmopolitics, which really sounds like a, cosmo, you know, a politics that sort of engages the cosmos or on behalf of you know, human, non-human entities, and somehow my sense was that he was linking it to this issue of uh, engaging with this hidden plasma or, you know, articulating or being engaged uh, with this, what he calls the masses, rely on the masses of hidden potentialities. You know, this almost seems to suggest that, well, to assemble a new world or a better world or to make the world better, 
and you have to kind of engage with some potential potentiality. Or there has to be the potential to create this better world, so to speak, or a better assembly, you know, a world that's better put together uh, somehow. And so this cosmopolitan seems to, well, it just seems that, seems to that, okay, that uh, I don't know, politics has to draw from this big vast unknown of uh, which which I mean the laws you know John Law's uh, description of it sounded uh, uh, also something like that and they called it some vast where is that quote uh, it says on page 243 that it's why John Law by trying to define his AIT perspective insists that the alternative metaphysics assumes out there needs to be overwhelming excessive energetic, a set of undecided potentialities and an ultimately undecidable flux. Now there's, there's slightly possible because he has been arguing against hidden forces and potentialities for most of the book and then suddenly at <laughs> the end of the book there is this, after all, this hidden kind of potential behind uh, everything. It's going to be kind of definitely, it's going to be interesting if he ever finishes that book is working on kind of to see how it is received because somehow I uh, I have quite actually after now reading this very carefully I have a very mixed feeling because to me there's a lot of wonderful uh, things and kind of you can kind of all the best thing in Latin writing is that you can get kind of it obviously inspires many kinds of works on many levels. But whether this project has kind of is actually uh, in a sense running out of Steam that it has delivered its fruits. Can it, can it kind of, can it kind of uh, raise to a next level still? Kind of, I think that remains to be seen. I'm not uh, totally convinced after this reading this book that it can kind of Latour can kind of push this still uh, one level further. He has a lot of marvelous achievements already during his career, but whether we can kind of take some other level, that's I guess that's going to be decided by this next philosophical book. Well, I think the fact that it's creating uh, controversy, you know, or that it's uh, it's an uncertainty somehow, mm -hmm. that makes it a, a mediator, you know, in the sense that well, what as he says, that what is a good account? A good account that captures a lot of mediators, assembles a lot of mediators, and makes others do things. So, um, I guess he managed to gather us around this table, this term, for which thanks very much for you know sticking. And we have to thank Offer because without him we would have never had this terms. Uh, we would have never had this terms because you remember we wanted to cancel the whole thing, and Offer sent that email saying. <laughs> You know, we need you know, something that we cannot uh, have an assembly without uh, without the humans uh, getting together or something like that. So uh, I guess we all, I mean, both of you contributed amazingly to me. So uh, I guess we'll have to at one point discuss whether, what we would do in the next term if we have a potential <laughs> to, to do something uh, carrying on with this. I don't know, it's the best, a very good question because um, I know that I have uh, well, maybe I'll shut this up now well, yeah